Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On news of another strong jobs report uh, with unemployment down to 3.5%, Washington uh, had a good week but plunged on Friday on expectations uh, that the robust hiring would prompt another rate increase by the Federal Reserve, then in turn prompting fears that prompting fears the move will cool the economy and accelerate a recession, a storyline that we have been discussing on this on this program for some time now. Uh, meanwhile, OPEC Plus Nations voted in Vienna to cut oil production uh, and drive up already rising prices, earning global ire, including by members of Congress as well as European politicians. Norway is increasing energy production, and Italy's new prime minister, Giorgia Maloney, told Italians to turn down their thermostats this winter, uh, a message that also has been echoed by virtually every other European government. Uh, The good news is Europe's stocks uh, of gas are at an encouraging 89%. In Britain, the Conservative government of Prime Minister Liz Truss was forced into an about face uh, in the wake of Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's announcement last week that the government would slash taxes while dramatically increasing government spending, prompting the pound to plunge and the International Monetary Fund to warn about the future of the British economy. Uh, The episode torpedoed the Conservative Party's reputation for good economic stewardship um, and prompted the government to uh, backtrack, as we saw at the Conservative Party conference uh, last week. Uh, Britain's Institute for Fiscal Studies is warning that 200,000 British government jobs would have to be cut over the coming years in order to be able to meet uh, fiscal targets. Pilots unions for two of the nation's leading airlines are split on Boeing 737 MAX jetliner. American pilots, uh, American Airlines pilots are urging Congress not exempt the MAX 7 and MAX 10 from certification requirements uh, by the end of the year, while the world's largest 737 operator, Southwest, does. Uh, this as Boeing tells lawmakers that it doesn't expect certification of the MAX 10 to be completed until next summer, well past uh, the deadline of December 31. Uh, joining us as they do every week to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuzev, the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory uh, Consultancy. Uh, Sash will be joining us later in the program. Ron and Richard are joining us now. Guys, uh, welcome back. Always a pleasure having you on. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. As always, a pleasure, Vago. Thanks. Indeed, absolute pleasure having you on, even if all three of us can't be on together. But we look forward to Sasha's uh, comments later in the program. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security, sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, uh, and our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, which along with Safran is also sponsoring uh, our coverage of next week's Association of the United States Army's General Meeting here in sunny Washington, D.C. Check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, Ron, uh, market was up uh, last week, but was down on Friday uh, on uh, what was a strong jobs number, 263,000 uh, new jobs, uh, if I if my uh, numbers do not escape me. Um, 
market fearing that uh, the Fed is going to do another rate increase. Uh, obviously, we know and have been discussing the fact that central bankers got this wrong and, and are now trying to sort of slow down the economy in order to try to tackle inflation uh, without causing a recession. And now, you know, there is an expectation uh, that a recession is coming in 18 months. Not necessarily new. How did the group perform against this news? Because there was some company-specific news, right? L3 struck a great deal with Viasat um, and also sold uh, its services business to CAE. So that was sort of maybe a company-specific driver. There was Boeing-specific news that affects the group. Walk, walk us through some of the storylines and how the group performed against the broader market. Yeah, so there was, yeah, broadly, it was a kind of a risk-on week, um, uh, meaning it was a, a bit of a bear market rally. Um, so if you look at the S&P for the week, it was up about a percent and a half. Uh, the best performer of the larger cap companies we follow was L3 Harris, uh, and some of that had to do with the the, the deal um, with uh, with Biasat for the Link 16 assets. Uh, they were up almost eight percent on the week. But if you just kind of run across the you know the, the big names, Boeing was up about seven percent on the week. Uh, Lockheed Martin about four and a half. Uh, Northrop Grumman about five and a half. Uh, Raytheon Technologies uh, just under three. Um, so it was you know, a, a reasonably good week, a good good week for the group, but it was also a reasonably good week uh, in the market, even you know, you know, Friday notwithstanding. Um, and you know, you know, the, the the Friday move in the market kind of gets back to this debate that's been going on in the market. You know, when will the Fed stop, and so on and so forth. But to put this all in perspective, the Fed started this raise, raising cycle in, in March of this year. Um, right. That was six months ago. Um, if you go back. Uh, over many, many cycles. The average uh, cycle time, Fed raising cycle is, is about 21 months. Uh, and if you go back over the last 16 cycles, they stopped raising at you know about 5.7% on average. So let's call it you know, somewhere between five and a half and six. Uh, and right now, you know, the Fed is at three to 3.25 and they've only been doing it for six months. So the Fed's going to keep going. Uh, and you know, inflation in the U.S. isn't great, but inflation in the rest of the world is actually really bad. Um, so it's it's a it's a pretty complicated picture, uh, and it's sort of like this this tension in the market of you know that oh the Fed's going to stop now, um, and they're they're probably not at least not for a while, and that's why you're seeing this volatility. Uh, the other the other news that impacted the week also was OPEC. Right, uh, oil prices were up on that. I know we'll probably talk about that in more detail later, but WTI was ninety three and Brent right. was ninety eight. Uh, well, uh, so uh, very quickly, right? I mean, yeah. so if the the Fed is uh, full of a lot of smart people, uh, obviously, even if you disagree with their uh, decision making and the way that they were doing it, um, I I think central bankers everywhere got it wrong, uh, right? So I mean, it wasn't just the guys sitting in Washington D.C. Um, who were a little bit too slow uh, and underestimated what these outcomes were going to be. Um, I mean, is there any expectation that the Fed actually might, you know, I mean, because if they're reading all of what they're reading and listening to what folks are telling them, uh, right? I mean, you know, everybody senior at all the banks have been passing this along, both in public and in private. Is there any expectation that the Fed will change track and and go with maybe a little bit of a lighter touch? Something which everybody's been earning, right? I mean, we were talking about Paul Krugman a little bit earlier, um, you know, even he's been saying, hey, guys, you know, don't overdo this because you could actually damage the economy. Well, I, I, a couple couple thoughts. And to be clear, I'm not the economist for B of A. So this is just Ron speaking. Um, but I, I think my interpretation of what you're seeing, um, the, the, the debate in the market is that the Fed does have a history of getting it wrong on both sides, uh, starting right. too late and going too high. Right. So 
I think there is a chorus out there saying, hey, well, wait a minute. You know, I mean, we, we know this from from the past. Um, so just, you know, be cognizant of the fact that as a as an institution, you have a history of kind of getting it wrong. Um, and, I, and I think that's a, that's a fair uh, point that you know, is being being made. What complicates things, Vago, and, and to be fair to everybody, all the central banks and all the smart people and so on and so forth. You know, we went through and, you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum from an aerospace point of view, but just think about it economically. We went through something the world has never gone through before. It was a global shutdown driven by a pandemic. Uh, and then, you know, the reaction to that uh, was 30, I think at last count, $33.4 trillion of stimulus um, that was kind of thrown in the mix. If you were to take 33 points, I believe it or not, did this calculation. If you were to take 33.4 billion trillion, excuse me, trillion dollars um, and line them up long ways, you know, side by side, long ways, you could go to here to the moon seven times. Um, round trip. Uh, it, it's a lot of money. Um, and the impact that that's had and the, um, you know, the, the, the um, how can I say, just the, the, the distortions that that's caused in the global economy, I don't think anybody fully understands because we've never been through it. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, really smart, good, good intentioned people getting this wrong because we've just never been through it. Um, and yeah, I, honestly, I think if anybody tells you they know where we're going to be in a year, that's a, you know, it's Kentucky windage, best guess, who knows, right? Just because of that. And that's what makes this whole situation very difficult for all, pretty much every industry, supply chains, investors, the whole nine yards, because we're really going through a situation here that there, there isn't a precedent for. I mean, you can think about like, oh, this is like the 70s. Well, kind of, but not really, right? I mean, right. exactly. You know what I mean? So it's, that, that's the problem. Um, and, and there were a vast array of other drivers, right? I mean, globalization was picking up in a way that it, ha you know what I mean? There were a lot yeah. of other drivers in the 70s, and this is a very, very different, you know, right? And, and you have a lot of other sub-themes that are happening at the same time, including decoupling um, uh, as well. You know, when you were, you were talking about getting it wrong on the up and the downside, it's a little bit like the commercial aircraft makers, right? I mean, the criticism everybody had of Boeing is they always get the cycle. Uh, you know, they wait a little too long before telling everybody to do, we're not busting uh, on, unnecessarily on Boeing, but just having covered the company over decades. And, and you know, are they going to get this cycle right was a storyline uh, you know, R R Richard, right? An important part of your business was trying to advise everybody on how to get how to get that ramp right. Well, and, yeah, and it, it still still proved uh, a little bit uh, elusive. Uh, Ron, uh, so Richard, let me bring you into this and talk a little bit about opaque uh, oil prices, rates, air travel, and and how you're modeling uh, all all of this. Uh, it looked like energy prices were coming down. Some of it was because. Um, you know, when the price gets high, the demand can drop a little bit, right? I mean, and it, you know, prices go up like a rocket, come down like a feather, uh, which we've discussed on this program numerous times. What are what's the impact going to be on commercial operators? Uh, because it's not abundantly clear they were passing along high high fuel price. You know, th th they weren't passing dropping fuel price savings to customers anyway. How, how is this, you know, all of all of these dynamics and air travel, right? I mean, I always like to get your sense on what the impact is going to be and, and what the impact is going to be also, you know, more broadly. Yeah, you know, first and foremost, echoing uh, Ron's comment about nothing much but more than a bunch of Kentucky windage. But, it, you know, it, no matter what people are going to announce on the producer side, it is just impossible to say what's going to happen with prices here, right? I mean, because it, obviously 
to a certain extent, slack demand factors into their plans to produce less oil. So the idea, the narrative that, oh, this is going to get oil prices back above $100, that's possibly not true. It could be that they're looking at the Asian economies, particularly China, and saying, oh, boy, better produce less to keep oil. You know, we don't know what it will be. They have a better guess than I do, but it's still kind of a guess. We'll see what it ultimately comes down to. But it looks like judging what markets have done and what people have announced and the stockpiles and inventories you mentioned before, I, I don't think there's much risk of things going a whole hell of a lot north of 100, which is kind of the, you know, I mean, that's happened before. It's been bad. It doesn't last terribly long. Uh, it hasn't been ruinous. You, you frankly want in the industry and what we're, we're modeling is something in a relatively benign environment, which is kind of in the 85, 90 zone. In an ideal world, it would always be above 60 and below 100 because, you know, much less than 60. And people start looking at their old jets and thinking, okay, this is great. We'll keep them. Thank you. And more than 100. And yes, it becomes really hard to start passing costs on. But on the other hand, um, you know, you've got the new, more fuel efficient uh, single aisles arriving in bigger numbers. 12 to 15% better cost savings. Uh, I guess where I'm going with this is that if you assume that interest rates don't go too high and people are still able to finance their jets, this just increases the incentive to keep new equipment coming so you can compete with your neighbors. This is, I, I think, extremely important. And I know this gets into the next topic, you know, but how Southwest views the MAX, they're heavily dependent upon MAX for basically maintaining competitiveness relative to other airlines that have introduced new, more competitive, more fuel-efficient uh, single-aisle jetliners. So overall, not I, I just think that there's an awful lot. Um, part of it was the political snub of the MBS going after uh, after President Biden uh, and, and Biden responding. Um, that's not welcome news from a geopolitical standpoint, but a greater read-through to the our industry, I, I think, is perhaps yeah, maybe just a little, if not premature, than uncertain. And, and thanks very much for bringing the 737 issue in because I want to get to that uh, in a minute, right? I mean, we were, you know, and the company was sort of suggesting the senior leadership were, were counting on relief from Congress, right? I mean, but they finally have telegraphed that uh, to lawmakers um, that. Um, the, I mean, that the certification process is just simply not going to get done by the end of the year. Uh, but Ron, let me ask you, you know, are, you know, if you if you look at some of the recessionary projections, uh, the size of, uh, you know, and where the American, uh, what the American debt picture looks like, as we heard from Michael Herson uh, on Friday's show on the Washington Roundtable uh, of American Defense International, I mean, he said, you know, if Democrats are smart, they'll do a debt ceiling increase before they, you know, in the lame duck session, uh, because it's likely to going to become a contentious issue. We had the Budget Control Act that really cut uh, government spending writ large, but also uh, defense spending and became very problematic over the course of a 10 year deal that nobody was able to undo. Um, and right, debt becomes an issue anytime, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, Republicans can try to make it an economic issue in order to undo Democratic priorities. It's funny, if they're in the White House, it's not as big of a problem. But when Democrats are in, in charge, uh, it can be a problem. I, I, any expectation and any inkling that you're getting that this will have a long term impact, negative impact on defense spending, irrespective of what the security trends are? The market hasn't really talked about it yet. Um, right. I mean, I, I think the risk you're alluding to is you know, as we go through midterm elections, if you do see um, a shift in in the House or the Senate or in both um, or neither, uh, depending on how it all plays out, 
Um, could you see a comeback of kind of that, that tea party sort of ethic where nobody wants to spend money on anything? Right. Um, yeah, and that, that's clearly a risk, right? I mean, for sure. Uh, however, when it's all said and done, given the broader security picture, given that probably, right? And I, you know, I, and I hate to you know, handicap this because it's almost, almost totally impossible to do. But if you see a, you know, a split hill, um, in the end, probably there'll be a lot of headlines, but the impact on the actual spending will be, you know, won't really, you know, be, be an issue. Um, but it's, 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 it's a headline risk to watch for sure. Um, and potentially a fundamental risk, depending on how midterms ultimately play out. On the subject of, uh, you know, relatively slack demand, it's also uh, noteworthy that Asia Pacific Airlines released their numbers uh, this week for August. And, uh, you know, things are still pretty grim over there, particularly in North Asia, down 39% relative to uh, 2019, sorry, only 39% recovered from the 2019 peak. That's really bad. And uh, also noteworthy is that cargo demand has come down a bit, which is uh, definitely a bit of a canary in the coal mine moment. But it just goes to show that if you've got this scenario unfolding in Asia, then just lowering um, oil production might not have a meaningful impact on fuel prices. It also might show that hopefully when the recovery really kicks in, particularly in Japan, South Korea, and other key markets, to say nothing of China, that's its own universe, um, that the strength of that recovery, the strength of consumer demand, just like it's been in North America and Europe, will outweigh any possible increase in prices, just the way it has in North America and Europe. So hopefully that's what we'll see. Let me uh, shift to the 737 uh, issue. What are we seeing? What does it mean? How does it resolve itself? How's the market looking at this? Can't be a surprise because folks have been talking about the unlikely nature of this. Management has been telegraphing you know, that they were going to try to seek some political relief. Um, you know, obviously nobody wants Boeing to fail, uh, but then giving a waiver is not really the right approach uh, either, uh, right? So they're likely to just set a, a new deadline. Ron, walk us through, you know, where we are. And 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 I think, you know, uh, Richard indicated why these two airlines have a very different view of it. One is a 737-dependent airline. The other one has a mixed fleet. W- w- walk us through the dynamics to this. Yeah. So, um, and, and to be candid, I mean, this one caught me a little bit off guard. I mean, I wasn't expecting um, the APA, the uh, American pilots to um, not be supportive of it. Um, you know, we, we followed up with them uh, after the fact, and it seemed like they're, they were pretty earnest about it. I mean, you got, there were some views in the market that, you know, American doesn't fly the seven or the 10. Um, they don't have any backlog, but if you look at Americans backlog position, it's, it's for the max family. So indeed they could take them. I mean, it's not, um, not in the possibility because it's not the backlog isn't specified as all eight. Um, I I think that the, the, the take from, um, the American pilots was that, um, it's a really a debate around increasing the margin of safety and fixing a known deficiency um, with a, a known fix going forward. Uh, and they don't buy the Boeing argument that if certain variants of the plane have one learning system and certain variants have a different one, that that of and of itself decreases safety. Um, and they'll use the 757 and 767 as examples that there were many differences between those airplanes, although they had a common pilot training. Um, 
So, yeah, so it's, I think it's a commercial decision and that seems to be where um, the Southwest pilots came out on it, SWAPA, uh, versus one that's just maybe more pure philosophical around safety on the airplane. If you do have this better alerting system, um, you have a known fix. It's been identified as an issue. Um, it was codified in the law that you need this and you have, were given a two-year heads up to do it. Let's do it. Um, so it's, it, I think from a congressional point of view, it really complicates things. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, how does, how does Congress, you know, you know, write a law to correct an issue, then say it's too costly to do and delays the aircraft that had the issue when that aircraft was given a two years heads up to deal with this. You know what I mean? So it, it gets pretty tricky to deal with, I think, from a congressional point of view. So it's still very unclear how, at least to me, how this all plays out. I mean, ultimately, I suspect that Boeing will get the, you know, the deferral, the dispensation, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's not obvious to me how you do that um, in a politically um, palatable way. Look, I mean, Congress in the, is in the business of solving problems like this, right? It creates problems, but it also solves problems. Um, ultimately, there is a safety issue that we're trying to address it. It's the whole reason why they had congressional hearings regarding it and the company paid a fine uh, re re regarding it to uh, settle uh, misstatements to the, to the government and to regulators. So ultimately, there's a congressional role in this. R Richard, you follow this pretty closely. What's the likely solution here? Uh, ultimately, the balance business interests, passenger interests, but also safety interests. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little frustrating. Um, as well, just as Ron says, this uh, American announcement, American pilot union announcement complicates things. And uh, yeah, you know, it, <laughs> there's a very strong argument for providing this dispensation because, frankly, you know, the idea that, oh, one member of the family is safe, the other one's not, it doesn't make any sense. And the whole date is arbitrary anyway. It's just, okay, anything that is certified after, I don't know, you know, five years down the road, you know, when, when that rule is put in place, it had nothing to do with the 737 and everything to do with, you know, future generations or future aircraft. And so this is purely, you know, Boeing's max disaster, just getting stretched out and out and out. And I think maybe that's the sort of big headline, like what the hell is wrong? You know, can't you just prioritize the resources? And, and as Ron and I would say, I think Ron, if I may speak for you, let's change the culture <laughs> towards one of engineering excellence to make this happen. Because of course, it's also becoming very obvious that their efforts to even meet production are going horribly awry. You know, guidance is still 400 and they're not gonna get anything like that this year. So <laughs> what's going on here? And what I'd really like to see is a kind of grand bargain. Um, I'd like to see everyone sit down in a room and say, okay, you know, fine, we're going to give you this. Um, now, the optics aren't good, so you have to make us look okay by saying, here's what we're going to do better. Here's how we're going to change. There's nothing wrong with this plane, and there isn't. Uh, but for future, you know, the future, in terms of our approach to new product development and our commitment to 
engineering resources and, and, and the culture of the company. This is what we're doing. I'd like to see this. Instead, what you got, of course, was Dave Calhoun's legendary, uh, back in June, I believe, announcement that, uh, well, if you don't provide the certification, we might just kill the program. <laughs> One more move and the program gets it. Uh, that was the exact opposite of what I think needs to be done in this sort of you know compromise, very public way, because frankly, I, I really think the big problem you know, yes, Congress solves problems unless the optics get in the way of them solving problems. So let's make the optics better. I think it's pretty clear. And yeah, you know, Southwest, that was, that was, you know, they were, they were saying, they were talking their book effectively and it made perfect sense, but it's not just that they're heavily dependent on Macs they're also dependent upon the Mac seven. That's their, you know, they're pretty much the only customer. And they really want that plane. They've always wanted the small version, whether it's the Dash 300 back in the day or the, you know, Dash 700. And now it's the Mac 7. That's, they like the small version of the Boeing. And that is one of the two, of course, variants that are affected by this ruling. But that alone, that preference alone is not going to make this happen. It needs to happen at the congressional level working with Boeing. They just need to come to the table. Um, let me, uh, we, we have to go into a lightning round here because we've got a couple of minutes left to leave time uh, for uh, Sash uh, and all the stuff we have to discuss with him. Uh, really quickly, uh, Ron, I mean, as, as Richard said, the seven and the 10 are very, very important programs. Uh, you know, and ultimately, are we hearing any more, red, you know, I mean, I, I would, would note on this program, I don't believe a Chinese airline has ordered a Boeing jet since 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And that situation is getting worse as we've uh, been covering. So that means, and, you know, Boeing doesn't appear to be developing a new airplane either. A any word or any new rhetoric from Boeing, whether the hostage hostages get shot in this uh, scenario, or is the company telegraphing that it's going to work with regulators to try to resolve this issue uh, really quickly? Because I want to get your L3 take uh, and the uh, EV tall uh, issue, the electronic uh, flight, uh, electric flight issue as well. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, you know, Boeing hasn't said anything publicly, at least to you know the investment community post um, the both pilot unions uh, remarks. I mean, there was one day after the other late in the week. So, you know, Boeing, Boeing hasn't really, really said anything, you know, I, I would, I would imagine, I mean, behind the table, they're working with the regulators, but um, yeah, there is, there isn't an official word to the investment community. Let's uh, shift, um, talk to us about the L3 Harris Visat deal, uh, as well as L3's divestiture of its services uh, business to CAE. Yeah. So this, this week, uh, one of the, one of the interesting things that, that occurred was, um, uh, L3 Harris bought uh, from Viasat basically their their Link 16 business, uh, which fits very well into the L3 Harris portfolio. And essentially, what they did is they they swapped that business for a business that they had previously sold a little while back to uh, uh, it was maybe six nine months ago to CAE, um, which was their training business. So CAE got uh, the, the training business. And they, they essentially swapped out the training business for. Uh, a you know, satellite downlink business, and um, um, in for for L three, it, it worked. It worked out, you know, quite well. I mean, they they got out of an underperforming services business. Uh, they bought something that uh, complements their portfolio, uh, and given the broader backdrop of what's going on with Viasat and Inmarsat, there's a deal going on there that uh, you know, Viasat was a uh, um, how do I say it, um, an encouraged seller. So. Um, you know, L3 you know, got it for a decent valuation. So um, I think for 
kind of everybody involved with that one that that, that worked out okay and um you know it, it positions uh l3's portfolio quite well uh, going forward yeah. and and why was vice had an encouraged seller yeah to, to to fix their balance sheet because of a deal that they're working on so it was you know, well, they were motivated largely by their own by their own balance sheet situation they needed to clean it up we've got less than two minutes so this is total uh lightning round uh eviations alice uh made an electric uh flight uh richard why does it matter? Why do you care? First of all, it's um, it's noteworthy just because it's uh, you know the best of my knowledge the larger trans largest transport that's uh, powered by electricity that has made its first flight. That alone is a noteworthy achievement. Are there any addressable markets in the scheduled world that can be affected by this? No, not really. But given the strength of announcements that are being made, particularly in Northern Europe, about you know decarbonizing, it could be quite conceivably in 10, 15 years time that this is what's permitted. You know, in other words, you might have these range limited aircraft that only by that point, hopefully hold 30 something people or whatever, but it could be that that's what you have to do. And air travel simply gets a lot more expensive. So, you know, again, again re- given regulatory changes, this might be in at least part of the world, the future. You're seeing this with hard aerospace too, which of course had a, uh, a rollout recently. So I think it's something we need to pay attention to, even though it's not gonna scratch the surface, in terms of actual capacity that you associate with the, uh, well, the, the carbon burning world. You're both going to be at AUSA really quickly, Ron and Richard. What are the most important things you guys are going to be looking uh, for and listening for uh, during your time there? You know, it's very clear that for the Army's future, it needs to continue to reinvent itself for the Pacific environment. You know, there obviously there, there's the strong relevance of tank forces in Europe. You know, that probably won't be as pressing in a year or two. So in terms of future weapons acquisition, it comes down to long range precision fires and of course their own need for a self-deployment capability, which means FARA really, because unlike the Navy, unlike the Air Force, uh, whatever the Army has to plan for its future in the Pacific, it needs to come up with some way of getting there unless it wants to be completely dependent upon other services. So to maintain their share of the budget, um, I think they really kind of need to be emphasizing FARA and, of course, the associated fires, the particularly hypersonics and whatever else. So I, I'm going to be watching for that stuff that's relevant, particularly FARA, any news flow, any rumors of timing. Um, FARA less so for budgetary reasons and relevance in the Pacific reasons. Love to hear m- more news about, you know, whatever they've got on the hypersonic front in terms of uh, and other, you know, PGMs that might be deployed and have relevance given the Pacific range requirements. Ultimately, the United States Army is very dependent on the United States Air Force to uh, get around. But I take your point, right? I mean, the, the chief and a number of other leaders have said, like, I mean, the the and much of what is in the inventory now doesn't have certainly the range and the speed to things that General McConville, the chief, has been talking about. Uh, Ron, uh, your take uh, really uh, quickly. Richard pretty much nailed it. I mean, that's that's pretty much everything um, we'll, be, we'll be looking at. We've got Meeting scheduled with some of the, the services companies. Uh, you know, one of the more I think interesting ones uh, we'll be meeting with is Palantir, um, and you know what they're doing for the army and and so on and so forth. So uh, we'll be down there, and, and General Dynamics will be hosting uh, an investor event at the meeting uh, with uh, probably a little more detail on uh, their their land systems business. Guys. Thanks very much for joining us. Really uh, appreciate it, and look forward to seeing you guys uh, on Monday at the show. Thanks again. Yeah, great to be here, Dago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Dago, as always. See you at the show.
And joining us now is one of our three musketeers, Sash Tusa of the independent uh, equity research firm, Agency Partners in London. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. And sorry you couldn't join the team uh, overall, but uh, scheduling is scheduling. Thanks very much, Neat, for being, being, being so tolerant, Fargo. We're very, very appreciative of uh, you guys uh, being so generous with your time every single week, especially on weekends. Uh, so the, the thanks is to you. Um, we, we heard from Ron uh, at the top, right? Uh, generally a positive week uh, on the market. Friday was a down day, increasing concerns. We're going into, you, you know, that high jobs rates in the United States uh, are going to drive uh, the Fed to uh, increase raising rates. We heard from Ron that these cycles, you know, the Fed gets them wrong, both on the upside, on the downside. Uh, from a European perspective, how was the week uh, and how did the Defense and Aerospace Group fare uh, in the context of that week? Well, look, it was a generally positive week. Um, you know, when, when there's no other trend than Europe, uh, European aerospace and defense stocks follow the US. Um, I would say that you know, Airbus, as the European bellwether, had a slightly subdued week. It was you know, up a euro or so, but I mean, nothing uh, terribly uh, spectacular. The interesting thing um, from our point of view over here was that some of the European smaller defense companies, even some of the large ones, but you know, the, the, the what we call the mid caps here, get very, very sensitive uh, about the outcome of the war in Ukraine. And the, the sort of horrible paradox is that when the war seems to be going well for Ukraine, there is a tendency among some investors to sell off defense stocks on the basis that you know, the, um, uh, the global defense rearmament or the European defense rearmament might, might not be going on as, as far or as fast as people would have hoped. So, you know, there was one day during the week when Rheinmetall, for no other reason, was up about 6%, very much seen as being a, a bellwether of the uh, European defense sector. And that was, I think, quite closely correlated with quite positive news coming out of Ukraine. Um, how did the OPEC uh, plus uh, news uh, affect markets? And more broadly, what are the repercussions of that, right? European gas supplies, fortunately, are up. Norway's pumping more. Uh, France is accelerating work on its reactors uh, to get them back online. Um, you know, the decision uh, by OPEC pro, uh, Plus to cut uh, production and thereby raise uh, rates was unwelcome in the United States. What was the reaction in, in Europe and on European markets? Um, look, it certainly wasn't welcome, but in Europe, it's, it was almost, and I mean, I sort of apologize, but it's almost seen as being a second order issue. Um, in Europe, the, the blame, if that's what we you know, want to call it, for uh, very, very high petrochemical prices is uh, laid fairly and squarely at, at Putin's door. And, the, you know, the fact that uh, the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines have been uh, shut off and, and so forth, and hence that the, the European shortage of gas this winter, gas the uh, the element rather than uh, petrol um, is a is a Russian issue. Um, is you know w- was really what people talked about this week. There was actually a um, a Europe a broad European summit being held in Prague this week. Not a European Union one, but um, many many more countries around Europe, including the UK, including Turkey. And um, this was actually quite smart. What it was was a um, almost an opportunity for um, speed dating. Lots of uh, bilateral meetings being held all over the place. But the big conclusions that were coming out of it was uh, the shortage of um, Russian supplies of petrochemicals and the degree to which the shortage of Russian petrochemical products means that 
uh, prices are up is what Europe's got to address. And that's why the Norwegians are pumping more. The UK is looking for a sort of bilateral deal to guarantee supplies there. And as you say, you know, French nuclear actors. So, you know, the, the OPEC plus meeting was unwelcome, but it was very much a second order issue compared to the conclusions coming out of Prague. Um, the, the UK has long uh, prided its uh, good relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, but uh, you know, the, so so did the United States, and and that uh, relationship has been fraying for uh, some time. Um, and the degree of frustration is getting to such a boiling point that some members of Congress uh, are proposing fracturing uh, the relationship entirely. I, I think what particularly annoys uh, uh, folks in Washington is the smugness with which the Saudis are doing this and saying, "Look, you need me more than I need you." you know, keep your threats to yourself. We're going to do anything we want and there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's a very, very dangerous statement to make because the United States can make problems for anybody, even its closest allies, when it wants to. Uh, it can start to enforce financial laws, uh, right? Uh, the, the Saudis uh, and indeed a lot of the Gulf countries are in violation of U.S. sanctions against Russians. So we, all we have to do is start imposing that. How is the relationship changing between the United Kingdom uh, and, and Saudi Arabia? Yes, but I don't. I think less over um, the OPEC Plus uh, meeting this week, and much more broadly, uh, the the relationship with Saudi changed as a consequence of the murder of uh, Khashoggi, what five, nearly five years ago now, and um, that really did change how the UK public think about Saudi uh, and how the UK government thinks about Saudi. So, you know, there are there are still close uh, government to government relationships, but. I think even you know the UK government ha is very aware of how badly um, uh, Saudi is perceived uh, in public, and I didn't think there was any coincidence at all that at the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen, um, uh, Mohammed bin, uh, bin Sol uh, Sultan did not attend. Um, oh, wait a minute, Mohammed bin Salman. Sorry, sorry, my fault. So, uh, sorry, three, two, one. Uh, I think it's no co uh, coincidence at all that at the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. Um, Mohammed bin uh, Salman did not attend. Um, was he not invited or was it made clear that uh, he would not receive a positive reception publicly? Um, we won't know, but it, you know, that was one of the biggest no-shows uh, at, um, uh, at Her Majesty's funeral. And I think that shows you, you know, quite how changed the relationship with Saudi Arabia has become. Now, does that mean that if the Saudis uh, came back and said, uh, you know, by the way, we want some arms, you know, say some more typhoons or something, we wouldn't sell it. No, I very much doubt it. Uh, I think, uh, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a slightly more arms length relationship now, and probably arms length and you know, holding your nose a bit. Um, I, I, it's extraordinary how frustrated uh, European friends are. Friends that would be somewhat more inclined. Uh, to be uh, open about that, uh, the frustration that they're directing at the Saudis. Um, and it is differentiated, right? It is more directed at the Saudis, for example, than the Emiratis, uh, I should point out. Um, let's go yes, uh, or, to- or, or, indeed the, or indeed the Qataris. Uh, you know, the Qataris I mean, right. have always had a, a you know, very, very different foreign policy anyway, and their relationship with the Emirates is, is sometimes difficult. But I, I, you know, I think th those three all have a slightly different position uh, um, via the uh, different European countries. Um, indeed. Um, let me take you uh, to the trust government's decision. Last week, we uh, discussed what a uh, disaster uh, it was. Uh, now, uh, some, you know, the, uh, the Conservative Party conference happened. There was a backtrack, if not an apology, 
uh, interesting um, uh, that uh, there was none. I think that that was noted. Uh, and now a report that actually 200,000 uh, British government jobs may be at risk here in order for the government to make its fiscal uh, targets. Walk to us, walk us through the conference, the backtrack, what it means for the UK economy. But more importantly, if you have to get rid of 200,000 people, uh, Sash, from your government roles, I mean, that's a giant number even in the United States, even if you do it over a couple of years. What does that mean, again, for defense spending? We may have the will to want to spend more, but the question is, is that reality or, or is that a trade-off the government is willing to make? We're going to spend more money on defense, even if it means um, trimming our sales you know, and I don't even know where these jobs would come from, given how hollowed out the British government is in many respects. Anyway, take it away in any direction you want to take it. Well, number one, I don't think the government has any idea where these jobs are going to come from either. Um, I think the uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies is a very, very good think tank. They're certainly highly numerous um, and well worth listening to. What I, that piece of analysis was, was really showing the holes the massive hole in the UK um, fiscal setup at the moment. If you cut taxes by 45, 55, 65 billion, pick your number, but you know, billions without funding them in some other way. And if you are worried about debt and gov even this government probably is and certainly should be, the only way you make them, you, you make things um, add up otherwise is by cutting jobs. But no, you know, British government is appallingly bad at cutting jobs. Um, Every department always squeals, finds reasons why they don't, and you know the job numbers almost never go down. Um, what I think the IFS failed to do, because this isn't what their analysis was trying to do, is to point out the you know the, the painful truth, which is that the way that this will all be squared is by taxes going up again. These tax cuts are unaffordable, hence tax cut, taxes will rise because that's how you afford the spending in the first place, and most of that spending is sacrosanct. Now, does that mean that that defence spending stays flat, goes up? Our view is that defence spending goes up tiny amounts in the near term, but towards the end of the decade, it goes up significantly more. The big variable in that is the US relationship with Europe. Uh, if, for whatever reason, the US becomes less connected to Europe, possibly as a result of China, possibly as a result of a different president having different uh, priorities, then whether the UK likes it or not, and the same applies to France, Germany, Italy, every other European nation, we're going to have to spend more to defend ourselves because, unfortunately, you won't be spending it on, on our behalf anymore. But that is, you know, several electoral cycles away um, in the UK, probably multiple leaders away. Um, and uh, but, but I think that's actually how this is all resolved. The 200,000 jobs is really just the, the, the painful maths that should be a wake-up call. Uh, and uh, the Conservative Party conference, the government's about face and what that means for the British economy and indeed the longevity of this government, right? I mean, how did the uh, Conservatives do vis-a-vis -vis how Labour did last week? Because, um, you know, I mean, even Conservative friends were saying that they thought Starmer did a pretty good job last week. Um, the Conservative Party conference was closer to a funeral wake than anything else. It was a disaster. Um as you rightly point out, uh, you know, Liz Truss gave a, the, the, what is now the new norm, which is a non-apology apology for the disastrous policies that her chancellor had introduced only days before, which had destroyed the, the pound and raised UK borrowing rates to, to new levels. Um, uh, she thinks that this is, the lady is not for turning, but it's not, this is just, you know, pride coming before the fall. Uh, I would be surprised if she made it to Christmas. Um, and, uh, you know, Looking at the polls at the moment, the Labour Party is 
polling twice as high as the Conservatives. It's roughly 51% plays 26%. Uh, I can't remember a government ever coming back from those numbers. Um, so at the moment, we have about two years to run in our political um, timetable. You know, it, it, it might be le less holding on for, uh, you know, in the hope things uh, turn, up, turn out better, almost never works in the UK political system. And then we'll have a Labour government. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, as you pointed out, Keir Starmer had a pretty good uh, conference. He's done a very good job of detoxifying the Labour Party and getting rid of the left-wing loons, uh, of whom there were a very high proportion five, eight years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, he is a, he's a classic political centrist. Um, so his party looks very green and inexperienced at the moment in government terms, but they've probably got uh, 18 months, two years to... Uh, to sort that out. And at least they look competent. And that, that's valued a lot by British electors. Does Truss uh, serve out the two years or does she get the heave-ho as was the suggestion last week and even you mentioned? Uh, and if she does get the heave-ho, who does it, right? I mean, the Conservative Party is very brutal about this when it comes time to toss somebody overboard. Look, I would be surprised if she makes it to Christmas. Uh, I think that the um, the likelihood is that the Conservative, or rather, not the Conservative Party, the Conservative MPs uh, force her out because they realise that she and her government is an electoral liability. And in that case, the most likely scenario, although we're now, you know, what, deep in speculation is that Rishi Sunak is just brought back without a vote uh, in order to try to stabilise things. I mean, almost everything he said in the leadership campaign has proved to be a hundred percent correct. Uh, right. So you know um, that that's likely. Can he then win an election? That's a really big call. Um, let me uh, take you really quickly uh, to uh, a war uh, update. It's been an extraordinary progress on the part of Ukrainian forces uh, over the weekend, destroying a key bridge, uh, the only bridge uh, linking Russia and Crimea, the Kerch Bridge. Um, Walk us through how you, I mean, you, it was interesting, your note that the better the Ukrainians do, uh, the more investors or somehow there's no value in these companies. You used uh, the Rheinmetall example rather than say there are stockpiles that need to be replenished. Actually, the, the real money is the one that's coming up. We've been drawing from inventory, uh, right? I mean, there's stuff that now needs to be replaced, which does mean real uh, spending. Uh, and indeed, armaments uh, ministers, um, NATO armaments ministers met last week in uh, Brussels uh, in uh, or week before last uh, to discuss how to refill uh, stocks. From your standpoint, what are the interesting elements of this war and where it's going uh, and what it should it should tell us, right? I mean, people are worried, are focusing on the president's Armageddon uh, address. He, he's been making clear what the risks are. Um, you know, there's no wavering of support on the part of the United States. Nobody is hiding under tables uh, with uh, Putin's threats, but they are taking it seriously. From your standpoint, where are we in the war? What's next? What is most interesting to you? Well, look, politically, the strike on the Kerch Bridge uh, however that was done, has a tremendous effect. It has a terrific effect on Russia because that was very much uh, the flagship product, uh, project in terms of linking Crimea to Russia, but also just politically, you know, if you build the biggest bridge in Europe, that has some political, um, broader political standing as well. And the fact that it was opened by uh, President Putin driving across it with his best judo mate, um, Striking at that bridge has a very, very big effect indeed. But actually, I think the big, the big news this week really was the 
Ukrainian attack uh, down what I'm, I think we should really start calling the Kherson salience now. The um, uh, bit of Ukrainian territory north of the Dnieper, or northwest of the Dnieper River, um, uh, northwest of, of Kherson, um, which has been surrounded by uh, Ukraine for some time, but, but they launched a fantastically effective attack from the north, uh, took at least um, 40, uh, 40 kilometers of territory. They're getting very near a key dam. Why is this important? Well, first of all, because it's making the Russians' position in that uh, salient almost untenable. They've got water behind them, the Dnieper. They've got um, one slightly broken bridge and uh, one dam with which to either reinforce or, or to withdraw. Neither of those looks, to, uh, and you know, they've been trying pontoons and that doesn't work very well. But you know, the, the possibility is the Russians um, could Either they get pushed back into a, an even smaller salient and, you know, it becomes what's sometimes referred to as sort of self-administering prisoner of war camp, or they lose a whole ton of personnel and um, uh, personnel and equipment and it becomes a major uh, military failure. But I can't see there are any good outcomes uh, for the Russians from that. Why is this important? It's because the Ukrainians can now do what they were incapable of doing at the start of this war, which is fighting complex combined arms operations at brigade and divisional level. Um, they couldn't even do it at, at brigade level uh, back in February, March, April. They were brilliant at fighting defense. They could not do combined arms attacks because you know, it was some, they, they were too fragmented and they didn't really have the, uh, the structure or the, the training to do it. They have their, their, the quality of their armed forces and their ability to do this in multiple places. So you, know, you have the attacks um, up in Kharkiv and down towards Izium. You've got the attacks now separated by hundreds of kilometers um, down uh, towards Kherson as well, shows that the um, uh, Ukrainian army or Ukrainian armed forces are becoming astonishingly effective at probably the hardest thing for an army to do, combined arms operation, infantry, armor, artillery, uh, combat engineers, also combat support, and all of the air support that you need uh, to enable that in the first place. And, you know, Hats off to them. That you know, that's something that most European armies couldn't do, let alone on two wide, uh, on two widely separated fronts. Just a final thing. Um, it's it's great to be on the right side of a proxy war and see it going so well. Uh, the West has been on the wrong side of proxy wars for fifty years plus. Um, we now, we at the moment, seem to be very much on the right side of one, uh, and the Russians seem to be, you know, taking a bit of their own medicine. I'm sorry, there's a bit of Schadenfreude there, but uh, this really is a uh, a complete turnover of, of uh, you know, what we've seen for the whole of the Cold War. That was me touching wood uh, right there, Sash. Uh, just <laughs> yeah, very absolutely. quickly, uh, just very quickly, the nuclear threats and, and how it's being interpreted in Europe, right? I mean, there's a little bit of overheated coverage, uh, but there are many who are pointing out, listen, uh, there's nothing different in what the president is saying now from what he did. We don't want to cause uh, World War III, but we want to help Ukraine, and that uh, support is unwavering, indeed, uh, reflecting well in polls. How are the Europeans, right? I mean, you're going to be closer to it than we are. How, how are Europeans interpreting some of these statements, and do you notice a change? You know, Because Putin is trying to fan these uh, in order to, to get everybody to back off, and that doesn't appear to be happening, even though yeah, he's so getting cornered more. Yeah, no, it's, it's not working too well here. As I said, you know, there was this big summit of, um, European leaders uh, uh, last week and you know European leaders at the broadest um, level were very very united the war is, is uh, Putin's fault he you know he can't be seen to get away from this scot-free and 
there was a remarkable shrugging off of um, uh, of the, the the nuclear threat. Now, if you use it, nukes, you know that will cause very or a nuke incredible consternation. But it's certainly not getting the you know the public traction that I think that he would want because it's the uh, you know it's it, it's the fear in the public that changes political perceptions that is how he would want to be fighting this 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 bit of the war in my view. Sash, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for making time for us. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope you uh, have a, a, a terrific day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Hargay.